0: There's
1: no one
0: as special as you. Hello, and welcome to the Lewis Brisbane Periscope Podcast. My name is Stephen Beer, along with my co host, co chair of the Lewis Brisbane Entertainment, Media, and Sports Practice, Jonathan Pink. We will peer into the Periscope to understand the challenges of today and the opportunities for tomorrow. Jonathan and I are very excited to speak to media executive Ann Sarnoff. Ann is a well-respected entertainment industry executive with over 30 years' experience in senior leadership positions at some of the world's most valuable and recognized media companies, including Warner Brothers, the BBC, Viacom, and Dow Jones. Sarnoff was most recently chair and CEO of the Warner Brothers Studios and Network Group. In this role, she was responsible for guiding all of Warner Brothers' entertainment-focused teams as they worked individually and collaboratively to produce content across all genres and formats for wholly owned and third-party platforms around the world. Under her purview were the Warner Brothers Pictures Group, HBO and HBO Max, the Warner Brothers Television Group, DC Comics, Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, WB Animation, Turner's Entertainment Networks, Harry Potter's Wizardry World, and Consumer Products and Experiences. Sarnoff became the first female chair and CEO of a major studio when she joined Warner Brothers in 2019. Prior to joining Warner Brothers, Sornov spent nine years at the BBC where she was president. BBC Studios America led the creation of the streaming service BritBox and oversaw the BBC Worldwide's global production network. Anne's previous positions include president of Dow Jones Ventures, COO of the Women's National Basketball Association, COO of VH1 and Country Music Television, and EVP of Nickelodeon. Sarnoff holds a BS from Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business and an MBA from Harvard Business School. She serves on the board of PayPal Holdings, the Motion Picture and Television Fund, the Women's Tennis Association Ventures Board, and also serves as vice chair of the boards of the Shed and Georgetown's McDonough School of Business. Hello, Anne.
1: Hello, Stephen. I'm thrilled to be with you today.
0: Well, Jonathan and I were really excited about uh, your coming on to the podcast and want to dive right in. Um, you became the chairwoman and CEO of Warner Brothers in the summer of 2019. What was it like to step into that role? And as I understand it, there was a personal connection to Warner Brothers. I wonder if you could discuss this.
1: Sure. Well, it was remarkable in every way. And, um, I was so honored to be the first woman in the role at Warner's. I feel like I was preparing for that job my entire career. Everything I've done in all of those great companies you just mentioned gave me, I guess, the experience and the skills I needed to hit the ground running at Warner's. The connection you talked about is in the very small world that we live in. My father-in-law, Bill Sarnoff, was the head of Warner Publishing for many years in in the majority of his career. And he personally was responsible for um, getting Warners into uh, DC Comics. He bought DC Comics in 1968 for $10 million. So one of the biggest assets that I took over, my father-in-law had actually bought and... um, and managed for Warners for uh, quite a few decades.
0: Wow, close to home. Yeah. Kismet. Yes. It's a great story. So you begin at Warner Brothers in the summer of 2019. You're the CEO and within months you encountered a worldwide pandemic, COVID-19. How did you manage this crisis and what steps did you take to pivot into this new untold landscape? And of course we'll want to understand what you learned from that experience.
1: Yeah. Well, that is a big question and um There's a lot in it. I will unpack it a little bit um, if I may. So coming into Warners, I had a few months, I think I had about seven months pre-COVID. So huge learning curve, getting to know the teams um, and really how they operate. And I had been hired to help break silos, to help build franchises, um, to help collaborate regarding the streaming service we were about to launch called HBO Max. So there was a lot of juggling of um, my time and my priorities. And honestly, come January 2020, I felt like I had really got my sea legs, um, had a plan uh, to to kind of uh, help me prioritize, was in the middle of restructuring the team. We coalesced around, believe it or not, again, DC Comics and um, really wanted to, to have a longer term franchise view of DC that integrated all of the various components in the company. So movies and television and streaming and products and experiences. So we had a um, a weekly task force that was a great way to coalesce all of the teams that uh, were under me and and teams that weren't at the time. Around D.C. and building a um, strategic vision for that franchise, so that was in the works, and I was feeling good about things. And then Stephen, as you said, COVID hit, and we had a lot of um, we had a lot of new things on our plate. One one of the big ones was we were about to film the Friends reunion, and um, that was going to be our key new content to uh, attract people to subscribe to HBO Max in May of that year. So we had the sets built, we had the deals negotiated with the six actors and the producers ready to go in two weeks and COVID hit and there was just no way we could film the Friends reunion. Um, So that had to go uh, uh, onto uh, the back burner Um, And right around that time, this will sound familiar, all of the guild negotiations were, or or the the contracts were um, coming up for renegotiation. Every
0: three years.
1: Yeah, every three years. So um, not only did we have to renegotiate uh, those deals, but then do so with COVID in mind. And people were terrified, honestly. You'll remember, like, there was no... Um, there was no vaccine, of course, and the testing was cumbersome and expensive and We had to negotiate with the unions how we would go about making production safe uh you know coming out of covid, which the other dimension was we didn 't know when we were coming out of covid we 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 were thinking it would could be weeks we didn't know we sh- whether we should keep paying people who were on the productions you know do we we felt terrible that um you know that everything was happening uh in, in such a tumultuous kind of shutdown way um but on the other hand you you had to also look at your bottom line and and understand what your, uh, cost situation was going to be and, you know, when things were going to get up and running again and how it was all going to balance out. There was the important part of this is there was no playbook for anybody in any industry. Um, but one in which that, you know, real time production is such a, it's the pivotal aspect of how media works. It was, it was really, um, a challenging time. Hmm.
2: Well, welcome, man This is Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. <laughs> a belated welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. So, one interesting thing that that came about as a result of the pandemic um, is sort of the change in in how content was delivered to audiences, right? So, you guys you guys started the Project Popcorn, which I'll ask you to explain because probably not everyone knows what that is. After you explain it, I wonder if you could tell us if there are any advances in content delivery or any significant changes as to how the audience now consumes um I guess I'm thinking primarily feature films, obviously, because we always watch TV and streaming in our own homes. So could you explain what Project Popcorn was and what, if anything, you think that changes that made to the industry?
1: So one thing I want to um, mention before I can uh, answer that is that when COVID hit, that was March of 2020, in May of 2020, AT&T, which owned us, promoted John Stanky, who had hired me. Um, and he was running Warner Media on behalf of AT&T. He was then promoted to run all of AT&T. And to um, fill his role as head of Warner Media, he hired Jason Kyler, who had been the first CEO of Hulu, um, previously at Amazon. And the company's focus uh, on streaming was really well-served when it comes to Jason, because he was uh, a very strong executive uh, in the streaming world, having run Hulu for a few years. And Jason came in and over the course of the next couple of months, he and I were speaking, and he decided that he wanted me to run all of the entertainment content to oversee all of the entertainment content at Warner Media. So in addition to the Warner Brothers assets, I then oversaw um, HBO, HBO Max, And the Turner Networks, Um, so TNT, TBS, TCM, um, and we had launched HBO Max in May of that year. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, we were going to have the Friends reunion. We uh, weren't able to film that. Uh, we did have some new programming, like the flight attendant that did very well, but we really needed to get a critical mass of programming for HBO Max. And the tricky part was we were now shut down. The whole industry was shut down. Nobody was producing over the summer. We successfully were able to negotiate with the unions. We renewed all the deals. Thankfully, no strikes three years ago. <laughs> um, yay for us. Um, and then it was getting back into production. That was everybody's focal point. And so in late August, we started getting back up into production. I inherited um, the additional businesses. So now I had the ecosystem all reporting into me. So the movie team, the streaming team, uh, the, the television networks, um, and Warner Brothers Television. So we started collaborating in an in a even better way and bigger way. Um, than we had at Warner Brothers um, previously. So we could talk about, back to the DC franchise, we could talk about the movies we were making for DC and and in parallel talk about the kind of series we wanted to spin off of those movies because now the HBO Max team was, was, I mean, it sounds silly, but oftentimes a company's structure defines the strategy. When you have silos, people don't tend to collaborate as well. And now that um, Casey Bloys, who ran HBO Max, was sitting right next to Toby Emmerich, who ran the movie group, you know, they could talk about, for example, um, Suicide Squad and and John Cena's character that was really popping, Peacemaker. And so James Gunn was saying, geez, you know, this could be a series unto itself. So that was all like a new way for Warner to work, Warner Media to work. So we actually started the spin-off series Peacemaker while the Suicide Squad movie was still in production. Same thing happened down the road with the Batman um, when we saw the Colin Farrell character, the Penguin, pop as just this remarkable um, character that we thought the fans would would really enjoy seeing as a as a standalone. Um, so we started making the Penguin, uh, developing the Penguin series while the Batman was still being made. So all of those um, efforts were really encouraging and we were taking the collaboration and the way we work to a new level. So got back up into production and as the year went on, here we are thinking COVID is going to be a couple months. Now we're well into it, six months. And lo and behold, we started spiking again. You'll remember in November of 2020, the Mm -hmm. the graph just like went up into the right. So many new cases of COVID and we're thinking, oh my gosh, you know, we're not coming out of this anytime soon. There was still no vaccine. Um, And this was a big, bold move, but we decided to launch all of our movies in 2021, both in movie theaters and on HBO Max on the same day. And Jonathan, you referred to that as Project Popcorn. That was our internal name. Of course, we didn't go out to the industry and say, hey, guys. Um, we, we were actually um, a bit on the defensive because the industry, everybody was flustered with covid um, and and not knowing when it was ever going to end, and every all of the businesses within the industry were trying to figure out their path forward. The movie theaters, for example, were really struggling. You'll remember AMC Entertainment,
2: right? Sure,
1: was close to bankruptcy. Like they were living month to month in terms of cash flow, mm-hmm. and it was it was literally very dark days. Uh, it was hard to keep the theaters going when there weren't movies to launch. So what we intended with Project Popcorn was really to be uh, to have all boats rise. So we would give the theaters seventeen movies predictably, and that's an important point because everybody was moving their movies. Like you know, we're shifting it back six months or twelve months, and we said to them, "We're going to launch seventeen movies, and we're not going to move." We, you can bet on Wonder Woman, nineteen eighty four, in December of twenty twenty. You can bet on. The little things with Denzel Washington in January of 21, et cetera, et cetera. So you can keep the lights on and you can keep paying your teams. Um, keep the, the theater business in business. Um, for the actors, uh, the agents were initially upset because they felt like, you know, we were going to somehow undermine the economics of the movies for the participants, but we ended up. Mm-hmm. Um as you know as well documented now we wrote big checks we paid the the talent as though the movies were hits um we made peace with the agents and um i think people were happy to see their movies being released because sitting on the shelf for a couple of years is not ideal either a movie can get very stale if you're top gun That did very well two years later. But a lot of the other movies that were going to come out, I think, would have would have seemed, as I mentioned, stale if we had waited a year or two to release them. Um, Of course, the fans were thrilled because not everybody could get to a theater. Some of the theaters weren't open. Some people felt, um, you know, like they were immunocompromised and they didn't want to leave their homes the theaters, of course, had instituted what they called "Cinema Safe," where they put in new ventilation systems. They required six feet of distance between you and the next person. They required masks. So we worked closely with them, and and they felt um, that they created a safe environment for people to be entertained in, as did we. But um, you know, not everybody flocked to the theaters in January of 2021. So we wanted to give them that alternative to watch the movies on uh, in their home on HBO Max. HBO Max did well in that regard as well. Um, we grew quite a bit over the course of the year, and um, it allowed the um, streaming service to have that kind of bridge programming while we were getting back up into production and making new series for HBO Max, like The White Lotus um, or Euphoria so it was a really multi-dimensional time where you know we were trying to come up with solutions to keep the, all the businesses moving forward, and to keep the fans happy, to keep our talent happy, of course, to keep the theaters in business. That is what we called Project Popcorn.
0: And it almost seems as if you had. Our Periscope working with you at the time, because it seems like you and your team were able to see, in many respects, were able to see the future and take a peek around the corner in terms of how to reconcile the challenge world of theatrical distribution, the traditional model, with the need to innovate on that model and to uh, leverage the technology developments of, of streaming and people staying at home and watching their films and content on better systems.
1: Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. The the Periscope is a good metaphor for that. Um, and, you know, Jonathan, you had asked about the advances in delivery. Of course, the streaming into the home of content has been a game changer. Um, people, as well as the bigger and better screens, of course. So the experience of watching something in the home is just much better than it used to be. And the quality of the content is much better than it used to be. And that has um, been amazing for people making content to deliver into the home. And it's also been a bit challenging for the movie business because um, the the movie studios need to actually take bets on projects um, that they think will open in theaters, right? And so it's obviously always a portfolio mm-hmm. that you're dealing with and you're hoping for mm-hmm. a couple of big hits every year. You're you're assuming a couple will be belly flops. You're hoping not too many and that most of them will be, uh, you know, break even or hopefully better. But um, since COVID, it's been harder to predict what people are going to come out of their homes to go see. And um it's been a challenge for the industry. Pre-COVID, I will note right. we had research pre-COVID and our own experiences just as I was stepping into the job in 2019, where not all not all the movies you thought were going to open big were opening big. There was already a, a tendency towards the big superhero films, the big action adventure films. Um, horror films were still opening, but some of the smaller dramas and rom-coms were not opening as much uh, or as big in theaters. So we saw a trend pre-COVID that, um, you know, has continued. So it's it's a challenge for everyone to figure out, okay, how do we get people back into the theaters and um, continue to innovate on the theatrical experience? You know, because in-home has become a compelling alternative.
2: Right. I mean, anecdotally, I'll just I'll just note that there's no movie that's currently open or about to open that I have any interest in going to the theater to go see.
1: Oh, come on! You want to see Barbie?
2: Oh no, no. no. Well, uh, yeah. My <laughs> Barbie is the one exception. I was going to say my wife wants to take my my two 20-year-old daughters to the theater to see mm-hmm. that. But I find that I'm consuming, I'm binge-consuming series, and I'm watching movies like like one and a half in an evening, and then I'll watch the second half the next day of the movie. So I'm watching movies more like I was watching TV before, and I'm watching TV more like movies, and I enjoy doing it at home.
1: Well, it's interesting you say that because I, I do think that the binging model – has become a bit of a competitor to movies because if you think about the story arc of let's just say, um, house of the dragon, right? So 10 episodes or last of us, that's, that's a more recent example. You know, you're going to get a more robust story arc because it's 10 episodes long or Mm -hmm. succession. Let's call that. um, another example so the story arc of a 10-hour series is very different than the story arc of a two- or three-hour movie. You have to fit a lot more in to those two or three hours. You, mm-hmm. The acts, um, the, you know, first, second, and third act are more condensed by definition. Right. So I do think people have a different level of satisfaction now with watching something that is 10 hours long that they can then – string together in one sitting. I mean, I hope not 10 hours in a row, but, uh, that, that's pretty obsessive, but you know, three or four hours, I don't know. I don't want to judge, <laughs> it Happens. but three or four hours. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, you know, previously you had to wait a week to, to see the next episode. Right. Um, I do think I'm still a believer in the weekly release. I really am because I, for all the reasons, um, that you might guess the, the, social media and social kind of Monday morning watercolor aspect of having seen something and know and knowing where everybody is in the series. Like, are you on episode three or episode four? When it's a weekly release, you know, you've only seen that week's episode and you can actually have a meaningful conversation. And I genuinely believe that is a material kind of benefit of, of consuming media. I want to talk about it with somebody. I want to share that experience and it's very difficult to share when when people are binging a series. It also helps with marketing. You you might have seen recent um analysis in the trades about like the the viewership of series that were released weekly versus series that were released all at once and the build of audience over the weekly releases is a real benefit in marketing because essentially people are marketing to each other. They're telling their friends about something and so every week the the ratings go um go, you know, to a higher level. And that helps everybody because it helps the talent. They want their series to be a hit. It helps the, the viewers to kind of share the experience with their friends. And, um, in, you know, from a streamer perspective, it's obviously better to have a subscriber over 10 weeks than over one week. It's better for the economics of the whole business.
0: So and today's a very significant day in the world of the entertainment business. It appears that SAG is going to join the Writers Guild in a strike. It, you know, as you already referenced every 3 years, the compensation structures and the guild and union relationships get reexamined and it seems that given the the complicated nature of content distribution and exploitation and their their streaming and the traditional models and how do you reconcile the competing interests with got increased cost of production, and yet uh, you know, professionals are looking to maintain their um, standards of living? How do the parties, the vested parties, reconcile these competing interests? And what did you learn three years ago that might be helpful today? What are the options for navigating this this um, terribly disruptive labor negotiation forward?
1: Well, that's a massive question. <laughs> Many, many people haven't figured out the answer, um, so I can't pretend that I have the silver bullet. But it's as you said, Stephen, the, everybody wants a fair wage, Every, We and, and we have the common goal, whether it's the studios, the actors, the writers, directors as a whole. But we we often are at odds with each other because of, oftentimes it's because of the dynamics that are changing in the industry. So three years ago, there was one of the key points in all of the guild um, negotiations was the backend residuals of the streaming content. And that's, again, on the on the docket for this negotiation. Um, I actually believe that one of the things that could help would be to restructure the way the windows work. I never thought it made a lot of sense to have the streaming window, uh, be the kind of be all and end all where you buy the content and you keep it on the streamer forever. It is to me, um, I think a a more reasonable and, um, kind of long-term sustainable model to have the streaming be the streaming service, be the first window, kind of like the way the broadcast networks used to be the first window. And the streamers are kind of that, you know, especially when you think about Netflix, it is that big, um top of the funnel broadcast network type of of service and there's been a lot written about the bang for the buck and how how much utility you really get out of the content for what period of time and and I do believe that you get the biggest bang for the buck in the first 6 months maybe 12 yeah,
0: front loaded value so if
1: you could yeah front loaded in anything whether it's your you know your movies and theaters or your television series um so if you could then take that content and move it into other windows and not have to pay for it all up front. In success, everybody wins because the participants, if, it, if that series does well, and as it moves through the other windows, everybody's able to participate in that success. I think that helps to rebalance the ecosystem. Um, it's challenging because not all streamers have the same strategy. So Netflix does tend to keep its content um, forever, and as you saw recently, HBO Max, um, WBD is now going to be selling some of the older content on the service to either other streamers or you know other participants in in the ecosystem. So it's a complex set of of issues, but I I think what everybody wants is to be able to um, participate more in the success. So I think the rebalancing of the windows would be one way to get there.
2: So that, that also seems to bring up the other, this thing called artificial intelligence actors are concerned about.
1: I've heard of it. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> um, you have any thoughts on what that does to the industry as a whole and and including actors? I mean, right, because with the capability of artificial intelligence, I mean, we've already seen it in terms of actors who are completely, you know, CGI generated and from from an acting, from a writing standpoint, all that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, it's another massive question. And it's clearly a game changing time um, with AI as uh, accelerating as quickly as it is. And it's also a terrifying time because of what you just said, Jonathan, that to think that your name, image, likeness, et cetera, could be completely fabricated with you saying things you didn't say or doing things you didn't do is, is absolutely terrifying. It's also terrifying from the perspective of displacing people's jobs and their livelihoods I think the way I prefer to look at it is that it's a tool for us to use and be in control of rather than something that's going to control us. And I think there's a lot of benefit that will come out of it. I mean, there's certainly um, not to take away from the craft of of writing, but there's certainly heavy lifting that AI could do in the writing process that could save time and effort um, and kind of elevate the level of um you know the 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 level of input, I guess kind of more from an editing point of view versus a writing point of view. There are certain things that could be the the heavy lifting that could be done with AI um but I'm not gonna pretend to know exactly how it will fit into the to the process, and I think that's one of the key reasons they're struggling so much right now in in the negotiations because. People are worried that if they give too much leeway, that AI could become a, um, a dangerous substitute for all of these amazing craftspeople in the industry. Um, so I, if I had my druthers, it would be um, something that, you know, if the, if the sides could work together as AI evolves rather than kind of have to lay down the marker right now for three years when it's such a rapidly changing technology, I would, I would rather have them work together to figure it out than to try to predict all of the different um, paths that could emerge over the next, not only few years, but even few months. So um, again, I, I, I don't pretend to have the answer, but I know that it's going to, it's going to require a very collaborative approach. And I, I wish that for the studios and all the guilds that they could work together to figure out what's best for everyone. Because it's not, obviously, it's not just about cutting costs. It's about quality and, as I said, being in control of the tool rather than to think anybody that we're all going to be, you know, a subject of the AI's mastery. In many ways, it will be good. It will help take costs out of the system, but it also has a huge impact on our society. I mean, people are going to have to upskill so it's a complex answer that, effect, that goes well beyond the entertainment industry.
2: My clients on the business side of the music industry are concerned about it for, for good reason. But, but there's also the flip side from the IP perspective, right? Because if it's entirely created by AI, there's no copyright protection. So, so my clients are concerned that, that uh, you know, there's music out there that, that is a not protected and that does better than some of their own artists. And, um, so the, the two are sort of in, in competition with each other. And it may be, it may be that the lack of, of copyright protection tempers it, or, I mean, it may just be that, that at least in that context, that AI becomes sort of like the synthesizer did where, where it is just a tool, right? So it's a tool for composers or, or songwriters and whatnot, but they just, they build upon it just like the synthesizer, you know, you you may not know how to play the violin, but if you know how to play the piano and there's a violin component to the synthesizer, suddenly you can play the violin, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this notion of um, kind of suing the AI companies because they're scraping your creative work is an interesting one, because Mm -hmm. by definition, that's what it does. Right. It it takes everything that's known and rejiggers it all, and and makes it more efficient for us to get answers to things or to create things. But the foundation of it is human brain power and human creativity. Uh, so how you marshal that and aspects of the legal side of things is you know they're just very complex. Yeah.
2: Yeah. The my wife and I. She was an IP transactional lawyer, and we, we talk about this all the time because the initial scraping is clearly it is an infringement. The initial scraping, as long as it's captured somewhere and copied, the case law is clear on that. But when it comes out the other end, I don't think it is an infringement if it's combined with enough stuff because I think you end up in fair use territory or de minimis territory. And it's like, well, but what happens you know, from the get-go and how do these people get off? It's a quandary.
1: Yes, but I but I think the most important part, whether it's the musical artists having fun, you know, saying, hey, to their fans, hey, have fun with this, let's do this together, mm-hmm. you know, again, but then they're in control of it rather than somebody running off and, and pilfering, right. you know, their, their, um, their work. Right. So it's just going to be very rapidly evolving and a, a great space to watch. And as I said earlier, also slightly terrifying. <laughs> slightly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually have a question for you and for Steven, for my co-chair. And, and that is from, from an audience standpoint. So, so take off our hats as, you know, entertainment lawyers as as studio executives, etc. And just from an audience perspective, do you personally care if the story you see on whatever you watch this evening had any human involvement or not?
0: Oh, I'll go. I'll go first. That's, um, that's open to the panel. <laughs> I I do. I would. Um, we are confronted with a, a buffet of content choices every time we think about relaxing and, and watching something or experiencing something. And so given the competition uh, for eyeballs, for me personally, I want to see stories that resonate um, from individuals that that take me to a place that um, that I can relate to but haven't fully, but haven't experienced. And I'm especially excited about um, narratives that are fresh, that are emerging, that come from diverse voices and, and places, and I don't think AI has enough uh, an enough experience or enough of a foundation to be able to present those meaningful stories in a way that. I think that that I personally would relate to, and that's just me as a consumer. I tend to like that uh, more independent, more edgy, um, original content, and I just don't see how a machine can can get to that place readily. Anne,
1: yeah, I agree with you, Steve. I I, um, I like knowing where something is coming from, and it's not just the the output of it, but the input of it has if you will, a brand resonance to me. So knowing that Mike White wrote something, you know, called the White Lotus will make me more interested in the next thing that Mike White writes coming from, um, as Steven said, a computer is, um, and you know, we may be sitting here in three years and laughing at ourselves with these answers, but it, it's, it doesn't have the same, um, potential for the, for to me, the value of the the craft of what we're consuming, I, I want to know where it's coming from. I want to know that an individual's brain um, and and all of their uh, kind of experiences went into went into what I'm watching. Um, as I said earlier, it's okay to me if they use it as one of the tools, but the entirety of it uh, coming from a computer is not. Is not something I'm I'm very comfortable with. Actually, in society, <laughs> certain things I'm very happy for computers to make, but but not um, but not content.
0: So, and you know that um, we have extensive experience working with independent productions and producers and s- stories that surface from the edges and not necessarily the in the the studio mass marketplace. You can appreciate uh, the challenges that independent producers have encountered over the last years. It seems like the independents, more often than not, are standing on the sidelines. They haven't really in, been invited. I don't think they uh, to the negotiation. I don't think they have a, a seat at the table of the issues raised here. What's the distribution avenue for the new storytelling? How how can these stories, which continue to be made, um, how can they get to the marketplace? How can they make a difference? How do they get eyeballs?
1: Stephen, are you talking about movies in particular or yeah, I am. independent producers across? I, okay,
0: Yeah, I'm talking about the, the sort of films that you might see at, at Sundance or South by Southwest or, or Toronto. And those films are not meeting the market. It's hard enough to get your film into Sundance, but it's even more difficult today to get a film that has been Programmed at Sundance to get distribution. How do independent filmmakers and producers get their stories seen and and discussed? How do we launch the careers, the the new careers of tomorrow? It almost seems like you have to get into, move segue into the the television world for that to happen, and that's a pretty high bar too, because, you know how challenging it is to, to get a show greenlit, and even and there aren't many, young or new filmmakers or new storytellers that are getting their projects greenlit into into series. So that's why I'm focusing on film, because then in that instance, the filmmaker has more efficacy to, to create, produce their own story as, as filmmakers. And in the producer ecosystem, the challenge is how do you get it seen?
1: Um, Stephen, are you saying that you think streaming is the problem with regard to that?
0: I think streaming is a part of the challenge because most streamers are not acquiring um, lower-budgeted independent films from from unknown filmmakers. At that, we saw traditional distribution companies or mini-majors or specialty distribution companies um, acquiring films 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, streamers understand who their audience is who their subscribers are. Um, the in- industry, for the most part, doesn't get to see what uh, what those algorithms look like, what their subscribers, what the streaming subscribers are are watching. But there is there is a certain. Um, uh, the connection between what mainstream audience is watching and what the streamers are acquiring and lower budgeted independent films as as we know them and in independently produced they're they're not being acquired nearly in the, the manner that they were it's um, like where's
2: the mirror max and 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 especially if I, I think all of us would agree that what we're looking for is fresh voices I mean like you know like, how does Quentin Tarantino of today, or just to pull an old writer name out of the hat, Neil Jimenez, if you guys remember some of his work. Um, like, where do these people, where, where are their voices heard and how do they make it into the mainstream? Because so it, it could have been so simple in today's environment that, that none of those voices were ever heard.
1: Right. So I think I'm going to say that I think it's two different questions that you're asking. On the streaming side, I I don't know if that is really the issue here as much as the theatrical movie experience is the issue. So with the exception that, as we said earlier, if streaming is now competing with movies because the in-home viewing of content is now kind of has become more satisfying than in the past, then yes, there is a connection between streaming and movie going. But streaming, in and of itself, like broadcast networks, like television networks, that was never really that. That was never really where independent voices and breakout storytelling was happening. It was, you know, your Miramax example is a movie theater example. So if we kind of flip to the second part, which is why are those movies, not finding a way, a path to movie theaters, then I can give you a lot of different answers for that. And some of them, which we said earlier, that there is this tendency now for people to want bigger, bigger sound, bigger sight um, when they leave their home, because there's, you know, just more friction than there used to be about why you know why sh- somebody should leave and go out and buy the movie tickets and buy the food and pay for the babysitter, etc. They need an experience, or what? What history and, and recent data is telling us? They want an experience that's different and and wonderful, and and kind of a good return on their investment to leave their home that night. So I, I don't want to say that everybody's being reductive and just putting out the big. Um, superhero action adventure and horror flicks, I would love to believe that the extraordinary storytelling uh, that I think you're both talking about has a place in movie, in in movie theaters, uh, the out of home movie consuming experience. Um, but it does require, I think, really breakout storytelling and a viral kind of aspect to it. Um, because it's so hard to get share of mind now when, when, you know, you think about all the advertising that's hitting people, because it's not just about what's in the movie theaters, it's what's on all the streamers, it's what's on television. Um, so the, the clutter is as, as big as it's ever been. And, and in order to, I guess, you know, kind of get your, um, get the attention of potential fans, you really got to spend some money. And that in and of itself is a, is an impediment to, to having the smaller movies succeed because the studios who just spend whatever 10 million making a movie can't spend 30 million to market it. It just doesn't work. So what you really need is, is breakout storytelling that, you know, can, can kind of build in success and have word of mouth, be a big contributor, um, there And there are plenty of examples of that. I mean, if you look at some of the, the movies that A24 and Blumhouse and Anonymous have created, they're not the big studios. And Steven, you're right, they're not in the negotiations, uh, or at least in the you know, the kind of um, the driver seats of the negotiations. But um, over time, I I do believe that it has been successful and and will continue to be successful if you have um, extraordinary storytelling. And it's just going to be, you know, it's going to be a little bit of a higher bar, especially if movie theaters um, have some consolidation coming out of COVID. Maybe there's not as many theaters. Maybe there's not as many art house theaters. That obviously factors in. But I do believe in humanity and that people are always going to look for, they're not just going to want what the masses want. The niche players have always found a way to um, to. Find a place in culture, whether, you know, it was kind of the cable networks of old competing against the, the broadcast networks, you know, they were better. It's, it's, they were better at finding, um, more focused audiences. And I believe over time, the bigger streamers will be challenged by smaller streamers and, and movies and, and other ways of making amazing content and telling amazing stories like i don't believe that it's just the mass media that's going to win over time but i but as you're both implying in your questions things have changed things are changing in terms of how and where people consume things and i think it's still too soon to tell coming out of covid what's going to win i mean people are just getting used to getting back into habits and i you know i really do want to believe that Really amazing stories are going to find a way into uh, into culture.
2: I, I like that comment about the higher bar. I mean, that's not a bad thing, and and it also reminds me. I went to UCLA Film before going to law school, and and Peter Guber was a professor there, and and uh, and he was always he was always an entertaining professor. I'll say, and 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 uh, had interesting things to say. But one thing he used to say was. That you could throw a, a good script out on the one hundred and one freeway, you know, here in L. A. And that that if it was a good script, someone would come across it, and it would and it would eventually find its way uh, into a theater. So I, I, in a in a way, I kind of feel like that's what you're saying.
1: Absolutely. I want to
2: segue a little bit and um and ask uh, about you and how you got into film and TV, as Stephen said in the, the introduction. You, you had, you know, varied. Um, background prior to this I mean yes the BBC and Nickelodeon and and whatnot but also you know you were with the Dow Jones um, entity and and in sports and so I'm curious what made you interested in going to film was there something you know as a kid was there an aha moment you know what drew you to it because I think that I think it's a, a particular breed who who is drawn to it.
1: I've always considered myself a creative person. I had, um, you know, I pretended I had a radio station when I was uh, a kid. I wanted to be a singer songwriter. I wrote for the newspaper. I, you know, um, there was a lot of creativity in my life. And, but, you know, my dad, honestly, it, it uh, I had no role models for any of that. My dad was a blue collar worker. And, um, I didn't have like many kids these days who want to get into the business, have a you know way of kind of getting a foot in the door somewhere. I wasn't even close to anything like that. And honestly, each phase of my life was a bit of, you remember the movie sliding doors. I, I had experiences like that, that I never would have, um, guessed where I'm sitting today based on where I started from. <laughs> Let's put it that way. And as Stephen knows, I, um, the only reason I'm sitting here is because Georgetown gave me scholarship. Um, I applied to one school and, uh, they had started, instituted a needs blind admissions policy the year before I applied. And my sister, my siblings are much older. One of my sisters had married a guy in Maryland. She said, you should go to Georgetown. And so I, I applied there and I got one of those big envelopes with, uh, Loans and grants and and work study and and that's why I'm sitting here. My I, my life would not have gone in the direction it, it did without that. And then there's a few other stops along the way. I was in strategy consulting coming out of um, business school. And after a few years of that, I was it was a bit mind numbing to me to be working with, you know, some of the uh, industrial and and more boring clients that I had. And so I got a foot in the door at Viacom and that was another game changer. And I sat across the desk of um, Tom Dooley, who was a senior exec at the time. And I said, look, I know I haven't I don't have the work experience yet, but I'm a huge pop culture fan. I'm a huge music fan. Huge consumer of everything you do, and and I've been, um, you know, in consulting, learning the businesses for a living uh, for the last few years. And I'm I'm a really quick study, and I'm I'm confident that I can, you know, learn your business quickly and and contribute because I've been advising mostly guys twice my age what to do with their businesses. So I'm I'm pretty sure I can hit in here. And he just looked at me, and goes, okay, you know, and 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 he took a bet on me. Um, but I think he saw the potential in me. And another through line of my life is that people have thankfully um taken bets on me and seen, you know, a lot of times, especially women or people in, in um kind of the non-dominant groups, uh kind of the underserved uh, or, or the um you know, the minorities in a situation, oftentimes they're overlooked because people bet on the actual experience rather than the potential. And I am a living and breathing example of people betting on my potential because coming from the background I came from, you know, it just there was just no way I was going to get a leg up until I had the opportunity to to demonstrate that I could do it. So along the way, you know, many, many doors opened for me because of that. And when I got to Viacom, it's like, you know, uh, my it's like everything I had dreamed about. I, I went to work at Nickelodeon that was run by a woman, Jerry Layborn. and um, for the first time in my career, it had been kind of, uh, you know, women were always a minority. And in fact, the consulting firm I worked for had male, only male partners. Harvard Business School was three to one men to women at the time. I played on men's softball teams in my job out of college. You know, I've been I've been playing with guys and boys my whole life and and you know competing in every way I could. But this was finally an opportunity to work in a company that was actually run by a woman and that was game changing for me. And Jerry has been a mentor of mine ever since. Um and you know I think once you can bring your full self to work and really demonstrate everything you can offer, um, I think that's when things start you know, getting easier and and career progress happens. And I had tremendous career progress over the five years I was at Nickelodeon, because I felt like I could bring my left and right brain into work, I could be a woman, you know, and not have to pretend I was, um, you know, kind of, uh, and I'm not going to say anything disparaging, because I know I'm speaking to two men here. But like, you know, women sometimes are, you know, have bring different things to the party. And, and I think sometimes we, you know, over the years, especially early days of women in the workforce, they've had to act and look like men. And my job at Nickelodeon was the first time I felt like I could really bring my full self, um, into the workforce. And I did very well there. And I think that kind of helped me launch into the, into the subsequent jobs. And I had the confidence at that point to be who I was. Um, and I didn't have to check any bags at the door, if you know what I mean. So, um, Sorry for the long-winded answer but it, it is a uh, it is a it is a wonderful story but not a not a simple through line like I started in the mailroom and, and worked my way up
0: it's a terrific answer. Yeah, it's ter- absolutely terrific. Here's to believing in yourself, being the best version of yourself. Here's to mentorship, and here's to making room for new voices and and new leadership. You're the first woman to be a CEO of a studio, and you know something tells me that you will not be the last. In and hopefully you won't be the last, but there there will be. Other other important women leaders in the entertainment business, we don't know exactly where and when, but it sounds to me like the forces of change are moving in the right direction, hopefully at the executive level and um and certainly on down with with the creatives and and producers. Do you feel optimistic about the growth of a female um, leadership in the entertainment industry?
1: I do. So to clarify, um, I was the first woman running the entirety of a studio, meaning movies and television and um, and the other you know games, etc. Sherry Lansing was the first woman to run a movie studio at Paramount, and Donna Langley uh, was running the movie studio at Universal, and then. In answer to the question you just asked, Steve, I'm super excited for Donna because she was just promoted to also oversee television at NBCU as well as the uh, content for um, streaming for Peacock. So that's a great sign of progress. Um, Statistically, however, you're right when you look at the people who are running um, the CEOs of of the um, the media companies uh, are all men, and I think it's a pipeline issue. I think we need more women to, um, to be able to be successful all along the way. And, and you know, and instead what you see is there, there's just drop off. Like we, um, we don't seem to make it to the top as quickly or in the same numbers as the starting point. So I think every, um, every aspect of this needs, needs to improve, but we definitely need more women in the running to be able to vie for the top jobs, um, and that has a lot of different aspects, you know, in terms of the hiring at junior levels, the promotion, the fairness of kind of processes as you go along the way. Are you being fairly judged? And back to my point about judged on your potential rather than just your experience. So, yeah, it's a complex issue and there's been a lot of good thought that's gone into women in the workforce overall and certainly um, we've we've come a long way but we've got a lot of work to do in the future.
2: Terrific. I mean honestly I think this is my favorite interview that that Stephen and I have done and, and 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 what you said is even inspiring to me. So um, you know if it can if it can touch an old codger like me you know then then that's a good thing. Yeah. And I started in the mailroom. So oh no, there's so, nothing. Damn, I shouldn't that. have done that. I worked for Roger Corman in the mailroom. I'm
1: jealous. I wish I had. I wish I could have had that opportunity. But you know, I mean, the other thing I didn't say is I had like fifty thousand dollars of debt, and there's just no way I could have done that kind of job. You know.
2: Right. Well, I was sixteen, so I went around. I mean, I grew up in L.A. and I went around. I just knocked on doors and. And asked any production company I could find whether they'd hire me after school, and and fortunately, Corman's company. It, it was a confluence of of events, including guy who had already worked in the mailroom, taking a two week break, and and the other guy who was working there, who was a UCLA grad at the time, so he was significantly older <laughs> than we were. Yeah, but he basically realized that if he had the guy who was going on break come back and me he basically didn't have to do anything which worked for all of us. So, but I love how you asked. I mean to me that's 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 another big takeaway, right? So when you were when you were at Viacom and 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 you said, "Look, I know I don't have this experience, but I also know what I can do" and I would like the opportunity to show you that. I mean, that's, that's huge. I mean, that's a, that's a...
1: I I knew enough to ask and I, and I didn't talk about sports. Sports was a huge part of my life and being able to compete, um, honestly with boys on the playground from an early age taught me how to stand up for myself and believe in myself and kind of that way. And a lot of value in the way you bring your, your game when you're on a team. Mm -hmm. Um, so I have a bias towards team sports, actually, even when I'm recruiting people, I, have a bias because i think um, being a team player is extraordinarily important in business um so that was very foundational for me as well um wh- two things i just want to before we before we end <clears throat> one thing i forgot to say was that project popcorn was one year only and it was just really uh, not just but it was it was a um, a way to get through covid and we didn't see any other way through it we didn't see a way to get our movies launched and to keep the business moving forward without um finding an alternative distribution mechanism for our movies and so i i do want to say that i truly believe in the theatrical you know movie theaters and the out of home experience it is the jet fuel in the entire value chain and i know that when we put the movies in the theaters and in the home i I know how people felt about those movies. We actually did the research and people felt better about the movies in the theaters. Like they liked them more. Um, so I, I honestly Mm. believe that Mm. we need the movie going experience to be very robust and successful for the whole industry. You know, it buoys the whole industry because the better the movie does in theaters, the better it does in the rest of the, of the windows. So we need that to work. And, um, I just want to really make sure that I, I say that I'm a, I'm a firm believer and we absolutely went back to theaters first, as you saw with the Batman coming out of uh, or into 2022. We released the Batman only in theaters. We made almost eight hundred million dollars. And it's a great example of, um, you know, what a great movie and great promotion and a great storyline Uh can do for you in the theaters. And, and, you know, it's not as easy for every movie to um, come out of COVID and and hit the ground running the way we did with the Batman. But I believe over time that the people will find a way to get the right stories into theaters and, and it won't just be the big, um, you know, usual suspects that do well.
0: You inspire us. Thank you for your leadership and um, excited to see things that you lead and manage and help to create going forward. And thank you so much for spending time with us today. Yep. Yeah, thanks for
2: me as well.
1: Thank you. You both asked some really provocative, great questions. And thanks for allowing me to tell a bit of my story. And there's been so many before me who have inspired me through their stories and their. Journeys, and if I can inspire anybody through this podcast, that would be a happy moment for me. So, thank you for that.
0: Your co hosts are Stephen Beer and Jonathan Pink. Our producer is Ayush Kumar. Our technical producer is Noah Vanderwerf. Oh,